Welcome to the Anything But Catholic podcast. This is our weekly Q&A episode, episode 13 of the show, where we answer listener questions that you, the listener, have sent in. That's right, you, the listener. I am your host, Christopher Lawrence. With me, as always, the amazing apologist, David Cook. David, how are you feeling? Can we really say always at this point, given what happened last week? <laughs> we're just gonna we're just gonna ignore that that happened. That was an that was oh, an anomaly. If was, you mention, was, if I become pope, I'll anathematize anyone who brings this up. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. David Cook plans to someday be pope. <laughs> this is now legally binding. So the next time he has any objections to entering the religious life, I'm going to point to this recording and say, David, but you said you're going to be pope, my friend. I said, if I become Pope. <laughs> I, of course, want a cushy position in the Vatican when you're Pope. If I'm Pope. <laughs> Don't forget the little people when you rise to the throne. <laughs> All right, David. So should we, we have four questions that we're going to try to get to if, if time allows. If not, we will hold one of them over for a future episode. We don't discard any of your questions unless they're just like really weird, man. <laughs> but these are fine. Um, so let's, let's get right into it. Let's start with the first question, if that's okay with you. And the first question is from our old friend Anonymous. And in this instance, I can kind of see why they're anonymous. Um, although this is a judgment free zone at the ABC podcast. So the question is, David, was there incest at the beginning of creation? Uh, this question's kind of weird. I think I'm going to discard it. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I can deal with that. So here, there's a few things I need to kind of speak on to kind of prepare people for this issue. So there are different views on how exactly creation works that are allowable under the Catholic paradigm. Some Catholics believe that the world was created in six literal 24-hour days. If you put a gun to my head, I'd say I tend in that direction. However, there are other Catholics who believe in an older Earth and may even believe in some type of evolution. Pope Pius XII um, pretty much put the limits on that discussion in an encyclical called Humani Generis. Now, it's not, strictly speaking, ex cathedra, so it's not infallible, but it is still authoritative. And in that encyclical basically said that Catholics who have knowledge about biology and theology can carefully debate the subject of the evolution of the human body, but basically said there are some concerns. But what he said Catholics absolutely cannot debate is the idea of polygenism. That is the idea that there was more than two humans from which all other humans came into existence. We are obliged, therefore, according to Pope Pius XII, and he's speaking in conformity with the universal tradition of the church here. Um, remember, we talked about that previously, the ordinary and universal magisterium I went into in my solo uh, episode. So this is binding that we cannot believe that there were more than two first humans. We have to believe that all humans came from Adam and Eve. So what does that mean? Well, that means regardless of whether you're on more of the six 24-hour days side of the spectrum or whether you believe in some type of notion of theistic evolution or anywhere in between, you're obliged to believe that all humans came from Adam and Eve. Ergo, you're obliged to believe somebody married their sister. <laughs> and I'll talk about why that isn't a problem in a second. But first of all, if you think about it, Adam and Eve had three named children, um, Cain, Abel, and Seth. However, it also says they had other sons and daughters. 
And given that Adam lived 930 years, um, we can speculate that um, Adam had many other sons and daughters. So what that would have meant is that Cain, what we see in scripture, that Cain took a wife. Um, we're not really aware of whether Abel married or not. He's not recorded as having married and he was murdered. So, But we know Cain and Seth both took wives. At least, most likely they took a sister, although it's possible that some other son of Adam married a daughter of Adam and then one of them married a niece or something. But somebody married their sister, um, bottom line. Most likely Cain and Seth each married one of their sisters. Now, how is this not a massive problem? <laughs> All right, so I am not going to pretend to be a biology expert, but we do know from looking at scripture that before the flood of Noah, people lived 900 plus years, a lot. After the flood, there was a steady drop. So I don't know what exactly the science is of what caused the global flood, but I think we can at least speculate that maybe there was something different in the environment. Maybe there was something, maybe original sin kind of gradually caused human genetics to decay. Bottom line, Adam lived 930 years. Um, Noah lived 950 years. By the time you get to Abraham, though, he's only living 107. He lived 175 years. By the time you get to Joseph, um, who was Abraham's grandson, you have a lifespan of 110 years, which is a little bit closer to what we would at least think would be possible today. There, another thing I'll point out is that there's a difference between natural law and positive law, right? Like, because there are laws that are inherent to nature, right? A man cannot marry a man, period. That's just, we, we inherently Im immediately just know that that's wrong. Like it, male and female, um, for unity, for procreation, you can't go outside of that. Um, God can't even change that. Like God can't even say a man can marry a man. That's just contrary to natural design and order. Um, a man cannot marry his mother. A woman cannot marry her father. That's contrary to the natural order. But with siblings, it's a little bit different. It's not inherently contrary to the natural order for a sibling to marry a sibling. Now, God condemned it with Moses. And I think there were reasons why. Um, we know that today, if two siblings get married, um, it leads to serious genetic problems. Um, you have kind of the jokes people make about uh, Alabama. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, the it's probably not true most of the time, but the, the subtext of it is that, you know, if a brother marries a sister, the kids are going to have serious genetic problems. Now that's not in and of itself, the reason why it's wrong, although that may have been a reason that God condemned it. Now, if you remember what I said before about the lifespans going down, I, I would speculate that when original sin first came into the human existence, there were probably fewer mistakes with the genetics which would have led to fewer genetic problems, if any. Over time, those genetic problems got worse and worse, such that that kind of relationship would have been more dangerous for the children. And so at a certain point, you know, it was no longer necessary because there were now enough people that were not close relatives to marry, and it would have led to more genetic problems. So at a certain point, God would have said, okay, this is no longer allowed, and we would now be bound to that. Um... So my conclusion is essentially, you know, obviously now and forevermore, it is wrong for a brother to marry a sister. That is not allowed by the laws of the church. It's not allowed by the laws of God. But previous to Moses, God did allow it. And I kind of gave my speculation previously on why. David, what's wrong with this idea that, um, you know, after God made Adam and Eve and the garden happened and the fall happened and they had children, 
God just kind of um, sprinkled other people on the earth that we don't hear about explicitly. And that's where that's where Cain's wife came from. What's wrong with that idea? The, the problem with that idea is that it would screw with the idea of original sin and our redemption. So all of mankind, um, bar Jesus Christ, except Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin Mary, had original sin, which came from Adam and Eve, which meant that we are naturally inclined towards sin and we need a savior. And just as all were damned in Adam, um, like scripture says, all are saved by Jesus Christ, which doesn't mean that obviously we don't teach a universalism. We don't mean that everybody is going to be saved, but we believe everybody has the potential to cooperate with grace and to be saved. And just like that's just like we all came from Adam. So if you inject other people into the world, forget Cain for a second because he was wiped out with the flood. But if you were to imagine that um, Seth took a wife that was not of Adam, that would create people who didn't come completely from Adam. Um, that would screw with the idea of redemption, not to mention it's condemned. Like I said previously, um, Pope Pius XII said that we can't even discuss it. Oh, David, David, dude, we just discussed it. What he mean? What he meant was, I mean, I, I, that that was me um, paraphrasing. But what what he means is that it's not an option for Catholics. Obviously, we can discuss any view in the sense of explaining why it's wrong. But he was saying that we can't. It's not a view that can be advocated by a Catholic. In contrast to evolution of the human body, where although I don't believe in it, and I think there are good reasons not to believe in it, he did allow for some um wiggle room on the matter when it comes to the idea of there being more than two first parents he ruled that out completely okay scared me for a second there okay disavow <laughs> disavow disavow <laughs> okay so let's move on to question two then that was a great answer david thank you um wow. this question comes from denise and denise says oh this is good how could god keep mary from sinning but also preserve her free will well, a couple things. Number one, the Immaculate Conception in and of itself was God preserving Mary from the stain of original sin. In and of itself, that didn't prevent her from choosing sin at a later time, although, of course, we know that she didn't. It's condemned to say that she did. But hypothetically, I guess she could have. She had that choice, and she chose rightly. Um, we do believe that God would not have chosen Mary to bear the Messiah if he did not know that she would fully cooperate with the graces that she was given and abstain from original sin. It is certainly by the grace of God that she was given the immaculate conception. It's also by the grace of God that she was able to choose contrary to sin. But we don't believe that God, like, took over her brain and prevented her from committing sins. Um, she made those choices to do the right things. Um, Mary said yes to God when the angel came to her. The angel told her she was full of grace and she would be born with child. And strictly speaking, she could have said no, although, again, obviously God knew she wasn't going to and he wouldn't have chosen her for this role if she was going to. But hypothetically, she could have been like, nah, don't really feel like it. And I don't think God would have forced her. Um, God knew, But God knew that if God gave her that great and overwhelming grace, that she would, in fact, cooperate perfectly with it. And I believe that's why he chose her rather than somebody else. Right. Um yeah, people tend to have this problem. We don't have to get into this. And obviously it's, it's, it becomes a very complex situation and question that whole books by great theologians have been written about. But people do seem to have this problem once in a while of um, the notion of free will coexisting with the idea that God knows how everything's going to play out. And 
again, it, it, it goes back to what you tried to explain to Matt Slick about God existing outside of time, right? <laughs> like just, just because God can see everything concurrently that has, does, and will occur doesn't mean that he affects those things directly to occur. I'm going to call into his show again sometime. If anyone has any suggestions for what I should school him on, uh, feel free to write those in as well. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to make me edit this out again? Up to you. I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll allow it. All right. Okay. So does that take care of that question then sufficiently? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a lot that can be said about free will and predestination. I'm going to be honest. I'm not an expert on the topic and it's something I want to learn more about for my own curiosity. I mean, I, uh, before I converted to the church, I was a very strident Calvinist and I was very strong on the idea of like, well, there's not free will. And actually, funny enough, I would argue that the idea of free will was a compromise with Catholicism <laughs> when I was Protestant. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it is a complicated discussion. But my simple answer is, look, God chose her in light of the fact that he knew that if he gave her this great grace, she would cooperate with it fully and be our sinless mediatrix between us and Christ. And so because of that, he chose her rather than somebody else. Um, I, I think there's a certain level of mystery here, but we can affirm that she had free will and yet fail, still that God chose her in the light of the choices he knew she would make. If anyone is heavily interested in predestination, I would recommend a book called, funnily enough, Predestination by the great priest and theologian, probably the last great theologian to have lived. I don't think we have any now, uh, whose name is Reginald Garigou Regrange. Uh, and I will try to remember to put a link to where you can purchase that book. In the description of this podcast, but I recommend it highly as well as anything else that Father Lagrange has written. Okay, question three. Question three, David, comes from Mark. Mark says, if a priest is living in mortal sin, does that affect the Catholic sacraments or does it affect in some way when he offers the Catholic mass? No. Next question. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, it doesn't. Um, and I'll explain why in more detail. The priest acts in persona Christi, and his sacraments are valid no matter how unholy he may be. The there was a heresy called Donatism historically, which um, under Roman persecution, um, some people left the church. And then when persecution kind of died down, they wanted to come back into the church. And the Donatists argued that, well, now that they've left and come back, they no longer can be valid priests. They no longer have the ability to offer the sacraments. And the church, by contrast, argued that, no, the sacrament of holy orders is indelible. Once you are a priest, you're always a priest and you're able to administer the sacraments, which is why when a priest is laicized, he is only forbidden to offer the holy sacrifice of the mass. He's not able to be prevented from doing so. It's still valid. For this same reason, the Orthodox and, Ori and Oriental Orthodox sacraments, even though they're offering sacrifice of the mass outside of the church it's still valid now it's not licit but it's still valid because they still have that apostolic succession and they still have um those holy orders so it's not they're not there's no way the church can take away the ability for them to offer a mass away from them and if a priest is in mortal sin um his sacrifice is still valid even though it may be illicit and i'll get to that in a minute but before I get into that, I will say, imagine if it was any other way. It would be completely unfair to the laity if they had to kind of read the heart of the priest in order to be able to know whether they were getting valid sacraments. Um, one of the St. Teresa's, I forget which one, but um, supposedly 
um, God told, she was able to see a vision of like a priest who was in mortal sin, having demons around him. And she could tell that he was in mortal sin. So I guess she asked God like, well, why are you letting this priest, um, hold you in his hands? And he was basically like, I love you so much that I'm willing to let this unholy priest handle my body so that I can be in communion with you. So we know that God God has promised us, and this is contrary to the way Protestantism works. Protestantism is, Protestantism is very subjective, and it's based on like, well, what is the subjective heart of like your pastor or you know your music director or whatever? The Catholic Church is very objective about things. If you see a man who is a priest offering the sacrifice of the mass, it's valid. Period. You don't have to look into his heart and kind of figure out like, well, is he in mortal sin? Is he in a state of grace? No, God allows this for us. And it would be if it was not so, it would be the consequences would be horrible because we couldn't know we couldn't know that we're receiving the grace of God because we can't know whether the priests are receiving the grace of God. But God has graciously allowed his grace to be mediated through any priest, even if the priest himself does not have the grace of God. And that's necessary because even though salvation is hard, it's not a game. God is not. Um, looking to trip us up. He wants us to receive his grace. So he gives us every opportunity to receive his grace. He's not expecting us to do the impossible. Now, it is sacrilegious for a priest to offer mass in mortal sin, and canon law obliges him to go to confession first, or if he is not able to do so because of some grievous need for the faithful, he has to at least make an act of perfect contrition. Now, we know that... um, now we know that perfect contrition is something that, you know, you can't really know that you have. And so it's not something you're gen- generally supposed to presume upon. But if there is a situation where the priest cannot receive confession first because of the good of the faithful, he can try to make an act of perfect contrition and then offer the mass. But if he doesn't do that, it's uh, a judgment on the priest, but it doesn't affect us because God still allows the sacrifice to be valid and for us to benefit from it. I don't know if that helps. It does. And um, in Hebrews, um, it says that the the priestly life is an indissoluble life. And in Hebrews 7.17 says, For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which is why any priest, even a laicized priest in an emergency, can also hear a confession, etc. Yes. Very good. Okay, so I think we have time for our fourth and final question. Um, yeah, so. And this comes from, oh, it's from another David. It's David versus David to the death. <laughs> and the question is, is there anything we can point to outside of Scripture that we can say contains God's word? Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that question before. I wonder if this question was written by like a time-traveling version of me. <laughs> Could you imagine? um so second thessalonians 2 15 requires everyone to believe what he taught either by word of mouth and by letter we could plausibly say that the dogmatic teachings of the council are of a council are god's word insofar as they're infallible teachings of god's church now it's not new revelation um pope saint Pius x said that revelation ended with the death of the last apostle but it is still the word of God presented to us in a different form. I I think Protestants kind of get the wrong idea when they think about like, well, God's word versus man's word. 
I think that kind of misses the point. The scriptures are one way that God speaks to us, and he gives us that through his church, like we talked about in the previous episode. And he also speaks to us through the teachings of his church, which convey to us the same teaching, but more clearly. So I, I kind of, I'm, I don't know if there's like an exact answer to this question, but I, I, I kind of think that it's um, sort of missing the point in a sense. Right. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, I've never heard it before, but I, yeah, I think what you say is true. It's, um, I don't know that there's any kind of concrete answer either. I think probably in the way that a Protestant would recognize what God's word is, they would say no, that's only in scripture. Right. But, but, the, um, but, the, but there's also, I mean, this actually gets a little bit complicated because there are different, there are two different views on, even though Catholics reject Sola Scriptura, there are two different responses to it that Catholics can hold to. One of them is what's called the material sufficiency view, which I, I've talked about this before, says that everything that we are obliged to believe is at least implicit in scripture, and that the church's tradition is basically expounding upon and explaining what that means. Other um, other Catholics would hold to what's called the partum partum view, which says that there are, it's a two-source theory, like you have the scripture and you have the unwritten traditions. And both of those put together form the apostolic deposit that we are obliged to believe. Um, both of those views are allowed by the church, as far as I understand. Right. Okay, very good. Um, so I guess, I think... um, depending on which view you take, if you take the material sufficiency view, then you'd probably say no. If you take the um, pardon, pardon view, then you would say the oral teachings of the apostles would also be God's word in the same way that the written ones would be. I feel like that one makes makes sense. That's me, what anyway. I hold to personally. Um, I've kind of talked about before. I'm kind of in the middle of the sense that on the one hand, I do hold – I think part and part of makes more sense logically. On right. the other hand, I can't really think of a single doctrine that I believe that I couldn't defend from somewhere in scripture. Right. I think that – yeah, that's important also. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Okay. Well, I think that will do it. That was the last of our questions for this week. And as always, I would like to entreat and implore – all listeners, to send us your questions. That's the whole point of why we do this. That's why we conceived of this podcast. That is our mission in life. We love our Protestant brothers and sisters so much that we want them to become Catholic and therein find the fullness of truth and everlasting life. Deo valente. Um, you can send these questions about why Catholics believe, teach, do, think, what we do, to virtues at protonmail.com. It's S-I-Q-U-A. V-I-R-T-U-S, and ProtonMail is P-R-O-T-O-N-M-A-I-L. We will accept questions there, as well as through our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash anything but Catholic, which is all one word. Links to all of this, as always, will be in the description of the podcast, as well as links to our main website, sequavirtus.com, wherein you can find the rest of the episodes of this podcast, as well as our two other podcasts, our user-submitted writings, essays, artworks, music, etc., our Patreon, and please contribute if you can. Even a dollar a month helps. And our merchandise shop, where you can find Catholic clothing and items that you may actually want to wear. David, you have an announcement about a change in an upcoming debate. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so due to various issues on both sides, um, John Wesley Bush III and I have agreed to delay our debate on Sola Scriptura until I believe the new debate is going date is going to be February 21st of 2021. 
And um, we that will be on Zoom. I will have the room key and all that other information soon. And um, the debate is going to be on the topic of Sola Scriptura. So um, in, in the uh, deep dive topic, I got into my objections to Sola Scriptura a little bit in the previous episode of this week. But um, we will be having that kind of two-way back and forth debate on the subject. So please do take the time to listen to that if you want to kind of hear both sides being fleshed out. Also, if you have any questions for me um, or if you want to challenge me to a debate on any topic, um, please email sequelvertus at protonmail.com or um, you can um, ask me in the Facebook group. Very good. Okay. Well, this has been episode 13 of Anything But Catholic. We hope we will see you again soon. Bye-bye, David. Bye.